Section 1 of Living on Half a Dime a Day. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Living on Half a Dime a Day. Subtitled, How a Lady having lost a sufficient income from government bonds by misplaced confidence, reduced to a little homestead whose entire income is but $40 per annum, resolved to hold it, incurring no debts, and live within it. How she has lived for three years, and still lives, on half a dime a day. By Sarah Elizabeth Harper Monmouth Section 1. Prefatory. This tale is a faithful narrative of facts by a woman educated, reared in abundance, and left with a competence which she used freely for benevolent purposes, but whose property was ruthlessly destroyed, and she left sick, crippled, with impending blindness, and no friends to look to for support. It was prepared for a lecture, but illness rendered its delivery impossible. It is printed at the suggestion of friends. Half a dime a day. You will hardly dissent if I say it would be easier to tell you how to die on five cents a day than how to live on that sum. Perhaps I should say exist rather than live. It is keeping soul and body together on a small annuity, and I may say in the outset that to live on half a dime a day will prove an infallible anti-fat remedy. All the patent bottles advertised to prevent obesity will have to point heads down and beat a retreat to Coventry before this bill of fare. But I must admit that five cents, as a rule, only buys the food of a day, and other things than victuals are needed to enable a person to support life. There must be a place to live in, certainly. There must be clothing and fire in cold weather. I had an old house and some land. I got $20 for grass, 12 for pasturing, in good years, 3 for apples. There was no work I could do owing to a crippled arm and blinded eye, save knitting and making mock flowers. The utmost I could ever earn in a year was $15. Here, then, was exactly fifty dollars, from which ten must be deducted for taxes. With the remaining forty, I was not only to make both ends meet, but all ends meet, and twist into a neatly knotted skein, as my frugal gift to each succeeding new year. Three years my offering has been made. I have got round on the forty dollars. It has been accomplished through contrivance, self-denial, and arithmetic. You have heard of the man who awoke one morning and found himself famous. I awoke one morning and found myself poor, so sudden as that. Or I don't know as I can say I awoke. I was like one in a dazed dream for months, an awful dream, in which a frightful incubus stretched itself across my gasping life and paralyzed me with cold, clammy terror. I was as one stunned and knew not what to do. There was an old roof above me, dearer than life. 
to sell or mortgage it seemed like disgracing myself in the eyes of the world and dishonoring my ancestors but i had not a dollar of money left and i had no health thus there was no work to which i could turn to earn a living you have heard of people living by their wits i was at my wits end how to live why didn't i let my place on shares i was too wise thank you i had tried that twice too many times in former years for the same reason i did not take a family into the house in that country place I could not have got rent enough to pay for the damages done the buildings, nor could I have borne the unavoidable noise and annoyance of a family in my ill health and nervous debility. So there were forty dollars per annum I could reasonably count on. At the prospect my stomach began to fall into a collapsed state. Twenty of this forty I must spend for food, I thought but the purpose was hardly fledged before war to the teeth was declared. It shall never be, said the mind. I care nothing about your old body. It must go to dust soon, anyway. You must understand I shan't starve, and I shan't eat trash, either. I have always had the best, and the best I must have still. Understand, once for all, that I rule and make your plans accordingly. Thus mine stepped to the front with a bold standard displayed, and it was for me to quietly recognize its position. I would live on seventeen dollars, and save three to continue my first-class weekly, Christian Union, with its unrivaled editorials and Christian instruction. There was still the other half of the forty dollars unappropriated, I sorely wanted to take enough from it to supply me with two of the best magazines. I, however, ventured on but one, thinking there would be two or three books in the course of the year I should feel as if I must have. What expensive tastes, one and another will exclaim. Ah, people differ in their ideas as to what is and what is not expensive. To pamper the body and famish the mind I should deem the most ruinous and wicked extravagance, and a so-called cheap newspaper, which deals in the abominations of society and dumps the filth of the world at your door every week, would have been a far too expensive investment for me. I could afford no such luxury. Seventeen dollars of my forty I assigned to supply food, ten for reading, leaving thirteen for fuel. I fortunately had enough wood on hand when the great loss befell to last two-thirds through a winter. The next one I got through with one cord and sawed it myself, which saved a dollar and a half. I could only with my disabled arm worry off a few sticks for my fire each day. In very cold spells I took a warm freestone and crawled into bed. I was too ill to work, and thus, to do, saved firewood. I would put mittens on my hands and read a while, and, when the room became too cold for this, cover all up and think over what I had read. This saved me in a degree from enervating myself further by fruitless poring over poverty and privations. I had enough bedclothes for comfort, but my own wardrobe, with the exception of one black suit, was pretty low when the loss came. 
I never bought a dress or pair of shoes for more than three years. It was entirely beyond my means to buy any article of clothing. So I had to tax both ingenuity and industry to get together garments enough for comfort and decency. I had a palm-figured dressing gown lined with purplish flannel. The outside of this was all in tatters, while the lining was good. I ripped it in pieces, washed and pressed the flannel, got out enough of the palm figures to make three bands around the skirt and sleeves. These helped to hide holes and faded spots in the flannel. Then I raveled an old scarlet worsted undersleeve and trimmed each band with a narrow fluted edge. So I had a quite dressy dressing gown, clean, whole, almost tasteful, and I took genuine comfort planning, piecing it out day after day, with half-mittens on my cold hands sitting close to a cold fire. I was more than a week about it, for owing to shortness of firewood my days were very short, and my lame hand was very decrepit and painful. I recollected that when I had made this wrapper, out of an abundance of nice new materials, I had been quite impatient at having to sew on it for two days, and called in help to finish it off. People who saw it after it was remodeled said it was handsomer than when it was new, and it is certain I thought a good deal more of it. I said then, and have had occasion to say many times since, I was glad I bought good materials when I had the means, for they could be worked over a second, even a third time, to much better profit and advantage. I made a whole common suit out of an old straw bed tick, and out of the fragments of a pair of blue drilling overalls some former workmen had left on the premises, cut narrow strips and stitched on the skirts for trimmings. Well, I suppose I was proud and determined to have some style about my garments. At a little distance my suit appeared like a neat striped print, or more like a substantial gingham, and it had the wear of half a dozen calicoes in it, Indeed, it comes out like a new one every season, and bids fair to outlast the owner, and descend to posterity as an invention, may I not say, and escape the charge of vanity, of both genius and necessity. My bed-tick gown, will not some poet step forth and give it immortality? Shoes and stockings were a problem for a long time. Shoes I had to learn to do without for the most part. One decent pair I would keep, but these could not be indulged in every day. Such extravagance was not to be thought of. I took the soles of worn-out rubbers, lined them with flannel, and laced them on my feet as sandals. At length I found a knitted shawl that had been in wear, I suppose, a quarter of a century, and quite a number of undergarments which had been knit by hand out of homespun yarn in the old days, when my father's flocks had whitened the hills, so barren and bush-grown around me now. Then it had been the custom to have much cloth woven, and much yarn spun on the buzzing old spinning-wheel for the family use. All these garments had been long thrown by, faded, defaced, and past wear. They were a mass of ends and no ends. After thoroughly washing them, I tried the strength of the yarn, and found it unrotted and not much moth-eaten. 
I had possessed myself of quite a prize. But it was the work of weeks to ravel, tie up, wind into skeins, color, rinse, and rewind into balls for knitting. I found some redwood and copperas, so I had several shades of color. Then I proceeded to knit five or six pairs of socks, and had balls of yarn left to foot down for years. I quite reveled in an abundance of material, and said exultingly, There is one thing I shall not lack again very soon, perhaps never, and for a long time, the last thing before retiring at night, I would go to the little drawer, pull it open, and take out my socks, pair after pair, and survey them with a fullness of satisfaction I had never, in better days, experienced over the nicest of boughten worsteds, or even silk. These were trophies of toil and contrivance. They had cost me not a little planning and labor, and I regarded them as my own successful achievements under difficulties. Therefore, they had value and favor in my eyes. I had fifteen mottoes in the house made on white muslin and cotton flannel. I soaked, washed, and boiled them clean, and supplied my drawer of linens. I had no outside garment to wear abroad save a very old, defaced, waterproof cloak. It looked like poverty personified. It was ragged, threadbare, the sleeves quite gone, of a most faded and weather-beaten appearance. There had been hanging in an outer room, I presume, for fifteen years, a rusty, full-cloth overcoat of my father's. I don't know why I had not given it away long before, but suppose I rather liked to see it hang there. It had a sort of look as if he were somewhere around yet. I had been charged with keeping that and a great pair of boots to frighten tramps in case they attempted any neighborliness. A sight of such largeness in apparel might lead them to apprehend there was a large man not far off, whose acquaintance it would not be judicious in them to cultivate. But I don't think I ever attached any protective power to these articles. I would sometimes get into them myself when I had to go out in the pouring rain to adjust the cistern for catching water or dig a snowpath to the highway in winter. But now that my wits were on the alert for means to piece out my wardrobe, I passed by nothing and left no article unscanned that could afford the least chance of aid. So I put my hand on the great overcoat and lifted it off the wooden peg. How heavy it was! and how rusty with age. It was lined throughout with fine black lasting, wadded and quilted in diamonds. My eyes gleamed as they lighted on this. I dragged the old coat off to my room in triumph. There I gloated and exulted over my prey, as I whetted a knife and went at it. I had no mercy, but just ripped and ripped and ripped, till the floor was strewn with parts of the parted garment. The other side of the thick cloth was a fine dark gray, just as bright as new. It was homemade cloth and had the stock and value in it. I thought so much now of having things warm, such as would keep the cold out and thus help me save fuel. Next I took my old waterproof cloak, washed and pressed it smooth, and cut away the worn threadbare portions to replace with strips of the dark gray fold cloth of the overcoat. 
I so managed that the cloak should look as if it had been purposely trimmed with another shade of material, and got a respectable garment that would do good service through a number of cold winters. The cape of this cloak had a pretty lining of broad plaited black and white flannel. This I removed and replaced with some breadths of old alpaca, which answered very well, and of the plaid flannel I fashioned an article of apparel suitable to wear abroad in spring and summer weather. To make it a better size, I pieced and stitched black grosgrain ribbon around the edge, raveled a pair of undersized worsted hose to knit a fluting, and finished this with a ball fringe. And it was indeed as pretty a cape as most anybody had. I expect, yes, I know I was proud of it, for I would try it on at home before the glass sometimes, a thing I had never done with the best silk dress my palmiest prosperity had ever gave me. My old cloak, renovated and remodeled by aid of the full-cloth overcoat, was better than new to me. It was surprising what satisfaction I got out of my hard-contrived garments. Then there was the shiny, quilted, lasting lining. It was as to shape almost exactly in the style of the reigning cloaks of the period, and the quilting was quite stylish, too. I had some cashmere to line and trim it, and my cloak was a fit it was in fashion, it was satin, if you did not get too near, so black and glossy was the lasting. If I had only been a rich woman still, everybody would have been exclaiming at my extravagance in buying a quilted satin cloak. Lest even now some person should not see straight, I have never dared wear my cloak abroad much. I luxuriate in it at home on cold days. It keeps out so much cold, wadded throughout, and is as good as an oven on my back. I put it on on Thanksgiving days to give thanks in. I was in a state of high exultation after such a series of successes with the old overcoat. It seemed now so plain why I had kept it so many years. I fancied my father, mother, long in heaven, saw my poor lame fingers and purblind eye at work, eking, mending, and repairing my scant, worn garments so intently and industriously for days and days, occupied and engrossed with the labor almost to oblivion of the hard fate, the wanton wrong that had reduced me to this extremity. But what pleased me most of all, I think, were the shoes I got out of the old overcoat. The cloth was so thick and firm it would outwear a common pair of slippers, I ripped up an old shoe to have a good pattern, and got quite a neat fit. I haven't had to go without shoes since. My German slippers are said to be prettier than those ordinarily found at stores. They were warm, comfortable, and not unsightly. They satisfied me. More than that, the mind failed not to celebrate with the deep, strong joy which unwanted effort and endeavor imparted every victory gained over the supremacy of bodily wants. It rejoiced exceedingly over every obstacle surmounted which hindered or disputed its own supreme sway. The homemade shoes shut off the shoe bill at the store and gave me Harper's Magazine, with pages more irradiated through the economy and contrivance by which I had possessed myself of them, than by the learning and genius of the writers, I might almost say. At least, 
the having worked through difficulties to obtain the magazine, imparted the keenest zest and enjoyment to the reading. I had fought with poverty for a prize, beat down the grim monster, and come off victorious, and as I turned the freighted sparkling pages, my heart sang a song of triumph. I would pull on my half-mittens, wrap my double gray blanket all round me, put a freestone to my feet and my back to the stove with its very small fire, and go to my reading, wondering and doubting if in any sumptuous parlor of wealth and magnificence a lady in diamonds and velvet sat down to her new magazine with the zest and pleasure that I did. Of course not. Every day brought new books and periodicals to her hand to be skimmed over and lightly tossed aside. My one or two were read and re-read and thought upon, and the current number was not passé when its successor came. End of section 1